Coming up next, the Booking Reads. What time is it? Game time. I don't know how to get out of this. What happens next? in the music. Bum, 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 bum. Let's welcome your players. <laughs> At six foot six out of North Carolina, number 23, Michael Jordan. What? Welcome to the Booking Agents and Data Office, and your humble and obedient host. Let's do donor shoutouts first today, just to mix it up. Okay. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. <laughs> Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds, is really fast. John Alberson. Oh, Where's Michael Jordan? Michael Jordan, the lovebirds. Michael Jordan, the lovebirds. Oh, he's donating. John and Jill, the lovebirds, and Max. John and Jill, the lovebirds, and Max. My mother, my beloved mother. Beth, Nathan's beloved mother. (laughs) Is this this for him or for me? That's his. Maya! Nice. Jay and Katie from Madison, Wisconsin, who are cold and love cheese. Jay and Katie from Madison, Wisconsin, who are cold and love cheese. That's right, they are. And then we've got, still relatively new in the, the donor shout-out family, Janice, Jenny, Jenny Z, the inscrutable Jenny Z. Let's shout it out to Jenny Z. The inscrutable Jenny Z. All right. Benjamin Tiberius. Benjamin Tiberius. <laughs> That's good. That's better than me. Nathan, not me. Nathan, not me. <laughs> Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. Nice. And finally. Finally. Who is it? The exquisite. Exquisite. The mysterious. Mysterious. Ex-mysterious. Ex-mysterious. Well, he's Professor X. (laughs) Professor X. He got it right. Come on down. (laughs) You're the next contestant on. That's right. The booking. (laughs) Well, that was donor shout outs. Now, how about some introductions? My name is Nathan Alverson. I am your humble and obedient host. I'm joined by the Brandon Chastain over there. Hey. How you doing, Brandon? Good. Ready to talk about some Until We Have Faces? I guess so. Yep. Yep. Let's talk about that Till We Have Faces. Let's talk about that Till We Have Faces. Let's talk about Till We Have Faces. Till We Have Faces. Let's talk about Till We Have Faces. Till We Have Faces. Let's do it. Done. We're done. We've all got faces. We have faces. <laughs> you have a nice face. Oh, thank you, Brandon. You yourself? Yeah. Entirely acceptable in the face department. Thank you. Thanks. You're welcome. And another man, I'm going to say, 
More than adequate. More than, yeah, more than adequate. Nice beard. Nice beard. Wonderful beard. Yep. Beard makes a face. Beard does make a face. I wish I could grow a beard. I've been told I would probably look nice with a beard. If only I could grow one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there are shops. Yeah. They spring up every Halloween. They're called Halloween stores. I could just get a fake beard. They have fake beards there. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I could. Brandon, none of this is introducing our (laughs) fair-faced friend. No. You think we should introduce him? Yeah. Let's try what we did last time. (laughs) That was a good gimmick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's introduce them together. It's like we're devils. It's like we're devils. Devils? Devils? Or devils? Double. Devils. Like in the novel, Dubliners. Like double days. Dubliners. Dubliners. Like the devil went down to Georgia. And like we're both psyche. Right, like, yeah. And like we're psychic. Yeah. All sorts of cross-references Thou too art psychic. Thou too art psychic. Psychic. (laughs) We have fun on the booking, folks. Oh, lots. (laughs) All right, right, let's introduce... The pastor who's the master, master of, re- of, of what? Oh, yeah. Sorry. He's, He's here, here with, with us today. today. And with and his, his name, name is <laughs> Jacob Mensel. He is the pastor who is also a master of the great, great art, art of. Being a man who picks up, picks up a, a book and, and breaks, breaks open, open the, the covers <laughs> and looks upon the, looks words, upon the words and, and lets, them lets them enter. enter. Yeah, I'm no, just following what your picture's saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so reading! <laughs> Hey, hey it's Jake. Jake. Hey, guys. How you doing? <laughs> I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing well. All right, let's... Oh, we already did donor shout-outs. We're ahead of the game today. Yeah, we're ready to... Running a tight ship. Running a tight ship. I'm like uh, Russell Crowe in Master and Commander. Running a tight ship. His ship was Possibly not, wasn't leaking. Possibly returning to a uh, screen, uh, screen near, a theater near you. What? what? Return, wait, Master and Commander is in... S- Returning to screen. Well, not not that specific show, but the franchise. Or the That's true. The That's what? true. If if uh, Russell Crowe has his way, he was sending out tweets saying, "Really? Yeah, he was like asking people who would like to see uh, a Master and Commander sequel. Yeah, I would. Brandon, you'd Everybody like to see a Master retweet. and Commander? Yeah, I, I liked the first Master and Commander. I did too. I found I find that whole lifestyle and story to be incredibly off putting. I mean, in the sense of, I would not want to be a sailor. I think though it just you don't see any romance in sailing. I see very little romance. I see a lot of gangrene and a lot of oh. going without water and a scurvy. lot of being flogged and having scurvy and being in a cramped quarters with Marlowe at night on the open yeah. sea. All that that part's romantic. All that aside, I I see the romance and I quite liked that movie. I, I and really, I think that Russell Crowe, what's his name? Colonel, trying to remember Captain Armstrong. Captain. The series is called Aubrey and Matt Captain Ren, Morgan. Captain Morgan, yeah, it's the Captain <laughs> Morgan story. Um, <laughs> it's the origin story. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Captain Aubrey, is that what you said? Well, it's, the series is called the Aubrey and Matt Ren novels. Yeah, and Jack Aubrey. Aubrey's the captain, right? And yeah, Matt he's, yeah, he's yeah, a yeah, great yeah, masculine leader. Yeah, people people really like that movie because it's like an actual movie about authority and manliness and stuff, and it's actually good. And I like that movie, too. But I see nothing romantic. I would not want to be on that ship with those people. And I don't like puns about weevils. I'm sorry. I know I've staked my claim as a man, a defender of puns on this very podcast, but... You think weevil puns are evil? Yeah. But do you like Jarvis? 
I do like Jarvis, and I think he's fantastic. I think that might be Jarvis's best movie, and that might be Russell Crowe's best movie. I'm not sure I would go there with Russell Crowe, but maybe I would. Maybe oh. definitely with Jarvis. And nostalgia wise, I'm going to give it to Gladiator for Russell Crowe. But yeah, yeah, just nostalgia wise. What's a better movie though? Probably Master and Commander. The director, almost definitely Master and Commander. Peter Weir directed The Truman Show. And he also directed the Dead Poet Society, which is the worst piece of crap ever to insult. Did he really? The celluloid by being printed on it. That's a pretty bad movie. I hate that movie. But The Truman Show is a pretty good movie. The Truman Show is a pretty good movie. Dead Poet Society is pretty bad. Dead Poet Society is everything that's wrong with our country today. If we have a free episode, we will either watch Shadowlands. Yeah, for sure. We want to watch the Beatrix Potter movie. Oh, yeah, we got to watch that Mm. thing. Uh, No. I haven't even watched the trailer. I just saw the poster and realized, not for me. It's garbage. It looks like garbage. Yep. It looks like it probably has jokes about his butt or something. Oh, I bet. Absolutely. Because yeah. all those DreamWorks things have jokes like that and it's really off-putting. And, and they it, throw them into the trailer. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of weird, those DreamWorks movies. DreamWorks in particular just feels like... Absolutely. I, yeah. I, I don't mean to be weird about it, but it's just... No, it's all, it's, it's, it's all about normalizing stuff. Yeah, and I don't want to... I've never been one of those guys that's comfortable with the whole Christian idea of there's a conspiracy out there and everything, but man, those DreamWorks movies... Yeah, it's an obsession. It's, Which ones are you thinking of? And it's like... Shrek. Oh, Shrek, for sure. I hate those movies. Those would be good ones to watch on The Lickening sometime, actually, because they just, yeah. like, deface the idea of fairy tales, and it's ugly, and it's mean, and I hate Shrek. Yeah. I, if you like Shrek, then you're a bad person. You're a bad person. You probably liked Shrek when you first saw the first one. Yeah, I did. So did I. So did Jake. Brandon may, may have I liked Shrek well. the first time I saw the first one. But... When you become older. I was so much older then. Right. That's right. Eventually you become old, you become wise. You look back on the stupid things you did in your youth, like watching Shrek and think you were good. You look around at yourself at the Shrek sequels. You look at the Puss in Boots movies. You look at what's happened and you realize, not good. Yeah, or you think Shrek is good and then you try to watch it with your kids. Oh, yeah. You're like, oh, boy. Yeah. And you turn it off. It's just mean and it's cynical. I mean, I like adult sarcastic humor, but... I don't know that adult sarcastic humor has much of a place in... It's a little bit like our discussion about Winnie the Pooh. I don't know that that level of irony belongs in... I don't know. Whatever, folks. We're, we're getting off topic here. Let's talk about Till We Have Faces. Winnie the Pooh's great. Yeah, Winnie the Pooh's the best. <laughs> hey. It's one of the biggest surprises of last year that people cared that much about Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> most controversial episode of last year, man, by far. And now the most controversial episode of this year, maybe. Oh, uh, probably. It's possible. Pig. It's conceivable. You warthog face buffoon. Yeah. Let's talk about it till we have faces, guys. I'm just going to come right out and say at the beginning of this episode, I do not know where we're going to land. I don't know whether I'm going to give the coveted B-O-S-A to this thing, the booking seal of approval. I do not know whether I like this novel. Here, I'll tell you what I know. I know that I read the novel quickly and I enjoyed it. This was the second time I read it. I know I read it as a kid and I liked it, but didn't really understand it and knew that I didn't understand it. I know that I read it this time and I enjoyed it. I was very moved by how sad it is the whole time. I mean, it's just like poor Orwell's life is kind of a bummer in some ways, even though she accomplishes a lot of great things and manages to forget her pain for a long time. It's just kind of a very relatable thing of 
you've lost this thing that was great that you loved and now you're just biding time until you die and he did a really good job with all that stuff and it was very moving and I enjoyed it on that level I guess but I felt uncomfortable and weird about the ending and I wasn't sure what to make of it I'm not sure what C.S. Lewis is trying to say and if he's trying to say what I think he might be trying to say then maybe the whole thing's trash and I don't know where I'm going to land on this novel that's my starting place. Help me out, fellas. We're we supposed to both give our starting places? Yeah, what's your starting place, Brendan? My starting place is usually I can gauge whether or not I like a novel by if I'm... Two things. If I'm sad mm-hmm. to have left the characters. Yes. Two, if I really wish that I could dive back in. Mm-hmm. And how does this book stack up? I don't want either of them. Hmm. I don't miss the characters and I don't wish that I could dive back in. But I don't miss the characters. You mean you don't miss Orwall, I guess. I don't miss Orwall. I don't miss the Fox. I think they were fine. I, I, they were in, engaging characters while it lasted. But they were like shadow puppets that once I got out of the book, they didn't have a whole lot of substance to them. And I think that would be Tolkien's criticism of Lewis, and I kind of see it, is that his characters, are they stand in for something. So the Fox stands in for what you would expect... Uh, philosophical Greek. Pure, unbridled reason. Yeah, to be like. And so, yeah, he, he plays the part while he's there. But after you get out, does he last with you like Levin lasts with you? Nope. To be fair. How many characters last? Okay, <laughs> to be fair. So does he last with you like Samuel lasts? Does he last with you like Dr. Van Helsing lasts with you? <laughs> no, actually. <laughs> we'll be making jokes about Dr. Van Helsing for years to yeah. come. I don't know the fox will make a, make a return. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Oral, now, Orwall, is that how we said? I think Orwall, I listened to the book, I listened to the Audible version. It was Orwall in that. She's the closest. Yeah, I just read a pronunciation thing on, an, on a wiki article or something like that. Yeah. So Which I was glad of because I had no idea how to... I, I think it was several chapters in and I was like, or you all? Or you all. Or, <laughs> or, 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 or. Right. Actually, I think if... Here's what I'm thinking now. If the book had stopped before book two, it might have lasted with me a little bit longer. Interesting. So if it had just left it there with her bitterness and her despair and her hatred of the gods, that would have had some impact on me. Yeah, I kind of don't want to agree with you, but I think maybe I kind of agree with you, but I don't know. That ending. Pretty weird. I think I've said it before. The ending to this book confused me when I was younger. I'm just not smart enough to get it. What's your starting place, Jake? We'll come back to answering some of yeah. Brandon's questions, I hope. But Like whether or not I'm smart so, enough to get it. <laughs> so was, my starting place is I read this book very quickly. Actually enjoyed the reading of it. Enjoyed being in it while I was in it. Mm-hmm. Enjoyed the story, wanted to get to the end. I don't think I in any way resent book two or part two, but I think I do really hate where Lewis lands. I'm not sure just yet what my takeaway is. The journey was great. The destination sucked is kind of maybe my starting point. Uh, great may be overstating it. The The journey was a an enjoyable, pleasant ride. Mm-hmm. The destination, I think, may just be really wicked. Yeah. Well, yeah. we're going to have to figure that out and solve that problem forever for people. Oh, boy. I don't know. 
So we got to get there. We got to figure out that ending because that's there are a lot rides on that. But I want to talk a little bit about the journey before we talk about the destination. I think I liked the journey maybe a little bit more than Brandon did. I know what you mean about the characters being shadow puppets, about you don't really get much of a sense of, of Gloam as a place or of these people as people beyond their function in the novel. It's true in all of Lewis. Mm-hmm. It, it's only less true of Lewis and Narnia because he has seven books to build who the Pevensey children are. Well, and the classic bookending theory of Stephen King novels are sort of work because um, I'm not going to be able to regurgitate my character. Char- the flatter the characters are, the so more long as the story is is well done, the more easily able you are to enter into the. This is I read. I, there's a critique of. Uh, Field of Dreams, mm-hmm. the movie, talking about how terrible of a movie it is and how every father and son in America who loves that movie is stupid because it doesn't give you any of the actual conflict between Ray and his dad and it doesn't doesn't give you any developed sense of their father-son relationship. And I just, just like, how stupid do you have to be to watch Field of Dreams, look at every father and son that grew up with baseball or whatever kind of close to the heart of their relationship and fault that movie for giving every father and son the space to import their own conflict in relationship with their (laughs) dad and son into that movie. Like it's a really stupid movie Mm -hmm. and, and grown men cry every time they watch it because it's not about all the stupid elements. It's not about the inconsistencies. It's not about, Terrence Mann was a civil rights activist who got jaded, right? <laughs> you know. But baseball is gonna like he's gonna give a speech about baseball and how it's marked the time. You know, it's just like all none of the details, none of it matters. Like cornfield in Iowa is gonna plow under a little bit of corn for a baseball field. Never gonna bankrupt anybody. Right. Not enough corn on that baseball field to be worth much of anything. None of of those things, none of it matters. It's not the point. Right. It would be just like it would be churlish to be mad at Star Wars. Luke Luke Skywalker is a two-dimensional, one-dimensional. Yeah, he is one-dimensional, and that's why every little boy that watches that movie can just imagine himself as Luke Skywalker. And that's why that movie is a perennial favorite. Dorothy in Wizard of Oz is a terrible character. There's nothing to her. Yeah, that's why every little girl can bring her own love of home and her own love of adventure and the conflict between the two and new friends and... mm, the scarecrow is just like your doll, and if the scarecrow was a really psychologically, and that's um, uh, this is a fine line between that really being able to work and that really just being stupid. Right. Well, my point in bringing that all up is in Narnia, it is so simplified and it is so sort of iconic and fairy tale like, and it brings so many dissociations. Like we all know what a wicked witch is like. We all know what a winter is like. We all know what a lion is like. It's so simple that it really works in something like this. It's a little bit more problematic because it's kind of striving for psychological realism and therefore you kind of want to hold it to that standard. And the fox is kind of fleshed out enough that he feels like a real guy and there's some moving moments like when he decides to stay mm-hmm. instead of go to Greece and things like that but then I do know what Brandon's talking about what what I would say is if it is a puppet play or shadow play it's a very good puppet play yeah I don't disagree with that it's like the scenes really live it's like Kabuki theater or something. The themes, exactly the scenes really thinking, live yeah. when they come. You were thinking Kabuki theater? Yeah, I was thinking Kabuki. <laughs> Great minds, sir. Yeah, Great minds. So. It's got sharp outlines and it looks good. Mm-hmm. 
And for the most part, the story's engaging. And you feel it while you're in it. Like yeah, her, it pulls you along. You her really, father makes yeah. sense in the moment when he stabs that servant boy or when he's being cruel. It's like, you get it. Yeah. But there's something slightly, I don't want to, I mean, yeah, slightly cartoonish, Pixar-ish to but, it. Uh, but that's just, just to say that you don't like Lewis and his style. Yeah. Like, and that's okay, but I, yeah. I just, that's what Lewis does. Yeah. And actually, I mean, it, I was engaged and I, I liked the book just fine. Mm-hmm. I think, so th- this that's all to my point that I'm not desperate to dive back in. Right. Simply because, like you're saying, Lewis isn't for me. He's but, not He's not what brings me back. But, but like I want to say- got, When we got through Anna Karenina or we got through an Austin novel, I, I want to go back and I want to- Just spend some more time I'm that sad that with Antonio. Yeah. Yeah, I'm oh, sad to leave Antonio's that world. Example, yeah, yeah, exactly. There are books where you get through with it, and you're like, I, I don't want to leave this world. I was enjoying it. Yeah. And yeah. so the, Jake's saying, well, that's not really what C.S. Lewis, stop me if this is a wrong, wrong, but it sounds like what then you say to that is, but that's not really what C.S. Lewis was trying to do. And it's not what he's good at. That's not what he's good at. That's not the book that he That's not the book that he criticized the book he wrote, not the book that you wish he would have written. And I think there is some truth to that. I kind of play the middle against both sides and say, this is the closest that C.S. Lewis came to trying to write a psychologically complete novel. Well, that was, I mean, I, that was the whole idea, right? Here's a myth that has no psychological realism to it. I'm going to try to bring psychological yeah. realism to it. And he that gives you enough of gloam and of the kingdoms. He gives you just enough that I can understand Brandon wanting a little bit more. The characters are well-rounded Did you enough. say Disney? Oh, you said Pixar. You said Pixar. It's funny because we, you, you talk about gloam, and I, I think I probably was at times imagining... Various Disney scenes. Mm-hmm. Well, I was imagining um, that dragon movie. How to Train Your How to train dragon, dragon and yeah, huh. that I world. It seemed like that world to me. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know why, <laughs> <clears throat> but yeah, that's probably why I'm thinking that. Well, it strikes me that I don't know what the castle looks like. I mean, even something like that is just a little weird to me. That well, you see it from the out from the inside out. So what you actually see are the streets. If you see anything, mm-hmm. you see the streets. You see the alleys. The peasants lined up at the gate here or there, but you don't actually. Maybe you see the room, like you see the room where they ride in, but you see it from the inside out, which is kind of realistic, maybe. Insofar as you're in Orwell's head and you're right, you're yeah. kind of just seeing things from her veiled perspective, so to speak. See what I did there? Cute, huh? Yeah, bareface. Yeah, her bareface. Bare bare well, she's not bareface yet, baby. Yeah, um, she's ugly. Yeah, <laughs> she's ugly. Apparently. <laughs> Um, it took her a surprisingly long time to realize that. Yeah. It did take her a long time to realize that. Yeah. I want to say I'm sort of with Brandon, if only as in a little, in, a, in some sense, if not that you guys are exactly disagreeing, but you know, oh. I'm choosing Team Brandon, if only because I actually kind of enjoyed the story. Like when it was, when it became the more, most story like and started working as narrative, like when she's just taking the kingdom and figuring out how to make things work and she has to have the battle with the dude and her relationship with Bardia and all that kind of stuff actually worked pretty well for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of want to say, I don't want to totally let him off the hook without holding him to the standard of just a good storyteller who creates good scenes because he came so close that. Why can't we hold him to that standard and say that he and then say that he failed? Like he did good enough that I want to say he did bad. Whereas no, if he'd yeah. done just a little <clears throat> bit worse, then I would have been fine just letting him off the hook and saying, I wasn't even trying to do that kind of thing, you yeah. know. I agree with you there, because her relationship with the uh, wife of Bardia was it was interesting enough. That's the most moving scene in the book, yeah. I think, when she suddenly yeah. 
ripped the off whole her veil. Sh- yeah, and the yeah. whole shift that happens with them. That was isn't that in part two? That's in part two. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. I thought that was fine, but it's not as good as how Tolstoy would have done it. Yeah, and I think that that's so like, going. Well, who can you? Who can? Be, I'm just gonna keep. If you go back, I think Tolkien actually kind of liked this book. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Does, does that's right? what Wikipedia says, and it's unsourced. And it's, yeah, it's source. I could not or... find that source. Yeah, I, I kept looking to. to see where the quote is that Tolkien liked this. I book. wanted to find figure that out. Yeah, because otherwise, I'm on Team Tolkien, and that I'm not completely sold on. Lewis's fiction. Mm-hmm. And this, if this is his best example that like reformed hipsters are going to come with and try to convince me, you haven't convinced me. I don't want to put my cards on the table, but. So, you, but, but maybe you, you will give all Jake a little said. bit of maybe a should, po- Maybe you should cut what I just said. <laughs> well, well, yeah, reformed hipsters. Uh, I found a lot of, I found a Patheos article on how. What I'm trying to fight against is there are people who say that this is like an amazing novel. I thought it was completely fine. I liked it. As for whether or not this is like a representative of something that should be in the pantheon of the great novels. No way. No. No, no way. And that's what I'm going to, that's what and, you're going to find. And if you're going to save something from Lewis. Yeah. Not that. This is not, not this. it. No. I think that hideous strength makes it much higher than this. That hideous strength is <clears throat> probably what you do Yeah, save. because the relationship between it's Mark and. Is only it? your sentimentality, it, that or, or Narnia. Because what is it, Mark and what's his Mark and name? Jane. Mark, Mark and Jane. Jane. Yeah. Their relationship is much more real than anything you get in here. I feel like I can picture all the scenes in, again, I know it's not exactly, but um, there's a lot of that hideous strength that I kind of can picture, you know, the animal attack, the, just her on the bus. I mean, there's just some kind of evocative writerly stuff that happens in that book yeah. that's like what it, what you look for in a novel. I don't know. I've, I'm The temple, the sacrifice, dragging Psyche <clears throat> away, going up into the mountains, down by the river, the invisible palace. None of that you could picture or brings any bells for you. There are places, I, I, I'm not sure we're being fair to say that the scene, there aren't scenes that are clear and evocative. The, yeah. It, it may not be his best stuff, but to pretend like there aren't some pretty evocative places is, I think, unfair. No, yeah. I, I buy that. Because, I, I, I mean, our, the scene where she first sees Psyche after she disappears. Yeah. The berries and the water. Yeah. That's really good stuff. Mm-hmm. Her hands is the cup. Yeah. and the. So you're right. There is, so we don't want to no be un, we don't I don't want to be uncharitable to him mm-hmm. or unfair. I'm just trying to be clear what I'm pushing against. Yeah, and what you're pushing because against is yeah. people have told me. I guess I should have brought this up in baggage, but I forgot. I have heard in various places. I forget who has told me this that this was like a masterpiece, mm-hmm. and that they like hold this in high regard. That there I'm are people that of, would actually as much as as unfair as it feels for us to compare this to War and Peace. There's a group of people that actually would compare it to, and something. they really really love this novel. And they're like, this is something like secret. They hold it secret because everybody else reads Narnia, everybody else reads the Space Trilogy, but then those who are really in the know, they read Till We Have Faces. Mm-hmm. Oh. Have you heard of this before? No. And so they really, this is the novel they prize. And then I come to it and it's just, it's good. But I guess I my, my, the only resistance I'm trying to give is, can we please not try to hold this fine little novel up against Tolstoy? Yes, right. like, we can. Because I think this novel <laughs> is completely, absolutely fine. Right. Yeah, and I, I think that actually it has some really powerful moments. Yeah, it does. The scene between her and Bardia's wife, the scene on the hillside with her and Psyche, a lot of the stuff that happens between her and Psyche mm-hmm. is really powerful. And yeah. some of the pictures she paints of the father, them under the pear tree, having cl- lessons with the fox. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's some really good stuff in this book. Yeah. I mean, you can see that Lewis is a really, really, really good writer. Mm-hmm. It's just 
for anyone out there who might be listening to this particular podcast because you think that Till We Have Faces is some secret masterpiece that you hold dear to your heart that nobody else knows about. It's yeah. not going to... There's a reason why it's not caught on. Yeah. And there's a reason why <laughs> uh, nobody would put it at the top of the Lewis canon. And so maybe I'm just talking to one person who has said this to me <laughs> right. before. But. Well, I know what you mean. The way I'm trying to weirdly in my brain combine the 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 Jake's strain of thought and the Brandon strain of thought, if I may so name them, is I just think the novel is good enough that you almost wish it was better. It's pretty good. It's pretty evocative in places. So mm-hmm. maybe but but there again, the my my inner Jake's point of view says, you know, it's also good enough. Like it really is good enough. So what the heck? It's just it's don't compare it to War and Peace. It's not War and Peace. That's fine. And I I do buy that. I don't want to be too hard on it. I don't want it to be too easy on it. So yeah. Find that middle ground. Find that middle ground. Um <laughs> things that I liked. Things that we all liked. What did we all like? I think anything to do with psyche was good. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. except for maybe that ending, but we'll get there. Yeah. So as far as the evocativeness, when everybody comes up because they think she can heal mm-hmm. this sickness. That scene really sticks out. He painted that well. So anything dealing with the sister's relationship, actually Or Orwall mm. as a character is pretty believable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Her trajectory is really good. So you can tell that this is a story that had been formulating for 35 years. Yeah. He knew this character and he was sympathetic to her. He loved her. Yeah. And then, well, it was him. Yeah. And then he tries to pull the rug out from underneath her. Yeah. And part two is her conversion. Right. Yeah. And it's the rug being pulled out from under, underneath her. She repeats to herself till she's blue in the face everything until she realizes how absurd her perspective is. And whether or not that's a truly that's that's the issue with the novel. It's Lewis. Yeah. That is that's, Lewis. That's it's autobiographical, I think, yeah. in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you get a lot of how he became a Christian. What he or at least how he saw himself becoming a Christian. Right. Maybe what I'm missing with it not stopping at book two. Well, we'll get there. You want to talk about what we like about it, right? Yeah. We'll, we'll get, we'll get to the what. ending. So, um, um, yeah. So I liked the character. I think her character was really strong. Psyche's character was really strong. What's the Radagast or whatever her sister's name is? Rudeval. Rudeval, yeah. Um, she reminded me of foolish Jane Austen characters. Mm-hmm. She was good. Well, and it was so nice yeah. at the end when um, she suddenly has this flash of insight that, oh, I actually abandoned her. I always thought she just had it made because she was pretty and I learned I taught myself to despise her and that that as foolish as she, as she was that hurt yeah and that's just nice that's yeah it's a nice character beat and a nice little flash of sympathy for a character who I would have been perfectly happy to see get whipped <clears throat> or whatever she said was gonna ha- you know I would have rid-, rid of all was pretty obnoxious but I always like when authors can twist my sympathies that way yeah well it's really clear by the, especially through part two that what he's doing is he's he's painting a sympathetic picture from the perspective of a narcissist the narcissist is going to have an epiphany an awakening and going to see everything differently and for the first time through the eyes of other people and that's going to be what's his face his wife and it's going to be Bardia's wife Bardia's and- wife and Rudeval and everybody else and realize that she is every bit the monster that she's accusing the gods of being. Yeah. That's the turn he's driving at. That's his thou art the man kind of thing he's yeah. doing. And if you can see it as a big parable mm-hmm. and accept it as that, then it's fine. I probably it can be a good convinced. Job. Right. I can be convinced 
that that's what it's doing. I, I think that's absolutely what it's what yeah. he's trying to do. I think you're right. Um, I guess I just my response to that is if I'm reading a novel and that's what the that turns out to be the whole twist that the novel's getting at. I'm like, man, <laughs> you believe the perspective of the author, yeah. <laughs> of the narrator, yeah, this not... whole time. But yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Well, I mean, I just kind of I, I I know I keep coming back to this, but it's like there again. I can enjoy a bicycle for what a bicycle is worth. I can enjoy a Corvette for what a Corvette's worth. But when something is kind of in between and feels like it's trying to do a lot of what a Corvette does, but then it's like, actually, it's just a bicycle. And I was like, okay, now I have a Flintstones car and Flintstones cars are stupid. I don't know if that metaphor (laughs) made any sense at all. But yeah, okay, it was big parable. Okay, so why did I have to spend so much time investing in all this somewhat rich psychological? If he was just going to pull the rug out from under my feet, then well, it, because if you've invested in it, then maybe you can have the same kind of. Maybe it yeah. works on you the way it works on her. Like That's what he's hoping for. Yeah. yeah, he wants you to be bought in to Orwell's perspective and to really see it from her point of view and be sympathetic toward her and and see the gods as being cruel and fickle and taking everything away and cursing her to this awful fate. And then have this moment where actually what the gods were doing, were giving her everything that she wanted. And she, she was exactly what she was. She was the devourer of everyone around her. She was everything she saw and accused the gods of being. And she was humbled and debased. I think if it can do that work for somebody, that's great. That would be wonderful. Um, <laughs> that sounds like a good book. <laughs> my impression of most of the people who have told me this book is really fantastic has been that they probably see themselves more as psyche than they do as Orwell. Weird. Yeah. What? They're like they're like really proud of themselves that they get the whole Lewis mystic. Does that make sense? Like they oh, get it. Oh, right, right. Like they get it. They're, they're so above they, Orwell. Yeah, so they can ever they see it like, and they're like, oh, well, yeah, they're maybe above I the fox. Exactly. They're above the. So they get it. So they see it because, oh, man, I get what Lewis is going for. Right. You know? And that's a little stupid, bit. Stupid Orwell should have yeah. seen the invisible palace and trusted and yeah. had the simple faith of Bardia and yeah. you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so why do those kinds of people like Brandon's yeah, talking about? a certain about? kind of person maybe that would really be attracted to yeah. this kind of book. And I think the reason is that I'm going to try to talk my way to is that Orwell sees the gods have done me wrong. And her epiphany is, man, I'm really selfish and broken and stupid. And we all kind of are. Everybody is in their own way. Like here's the fox and... The fox was clearly wrong and messed up in his own way. And here's the priest of Ungit or whatever the guy's name is. Here's my father even. Here's my father. And we're all just sort of in this together in our own helpless, hapless, broken way. And it's set, even the context of when it's set, when and where it's set, it's set in a pre-Jesus. We're all just sort of stumbling forward through the dark and the priest of Ungit has this, there's something that he's got that's right, but he doesn't have the whole picture. And there's something that the fox has that's right, and he doesn't have the whole picture. And I'm stumbling through the dark trying to find the whole picture. The only thing I can really see is that we're all just a broken <laughs> people yeah. who are striving for the day when we have faces yeah. and can speak to the gods. And so it's just sort of like it's a celebration of that kind of beautifully broken, all trying to find our way, all having our own pieces of the puzzle, all carrying our own resentments and really just needing to let go of our resentments. So what that also tells you is that the people who 
like it are resentful, right? yeah. bitter people, but who know it and who just sort of like... They get it. It's cathartic for them. Yeah. It's cathartic for them to to read it and to have it opened up, but they don't want to go beyond it. And that's what Lewis doesn't want to do and doesn't think anybody needs to mm-hmm. do. And that's the real problem is this well, is really with- Lewis and he's showing his hand here. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is his gospel. Right. Yeah. And there is uh, there is no sin or repentance yeah. or Jesus. Which is why, and we'll get to her eventually, which is why I have an easier time after reading her fiction saying that Flannery O'Connor was an actual Christian versus after reading Till We Have Faces saying that C.S. Lewis had an actual gospel. Because with Flannery O'Connor, you get fear and repentance. And if you don't repent, you die. Right. Yeah. If you do repent, sometimes yeah. you die. So if you do repent, sometimes you die. Right. That's the way life is. Right. <laughs> um, but with C.S. Lewis, there's not the fear there. It's not like she's at risk of dying. No, because... we all just sort of like, it's like lost. Yeah. <laughs> it's very much like lost. Yeah. That's a good we'll analogy. all just end up, it reminds me of this church back in Texas. They call themselves the hospital church mm-hmm. and it all celebrates everybody's injuries and wounds. Right. And like it, the, the point is to smell everybody's gangrene. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you can smell gangrene and put up with it and realize that your gangrene's beautiful and my gangrene's beautiful, and mm-hmm. let's all just really get along with each other's gangrene. <laughs> That's the whole point of the church. <laughs> to be a hospital where nobody gets better. Yeah, but nobody <laughs> yeah. gets better. Nobody realizes uh-huh. that gangrene's actually kind of disgusting. Yeah, like, I don't want to touch it. What y'all actually have are, is MRSA, yeah. and you need yeah. to... <laughs> it's like there's pus coming out of that thing. Let's, let's get it wrapped up and fixed and with shepherds who actually care for you. Instead, everybody's just celebrating their broken deformity. Right. Well, we have, I mean, not to, well, why should I be embarrassed to get biblical on us? We have a really well-written piece of literature from the scriptures about why bad things happen to good people, why the gods are crazy, you know, and it's the book of Job. The way that book ends is with God appearing in a whirlwind and saying, who are you to question me, Job? And Job putting his hand on his mouth and repenting in dust and ashes. If C.S. Lewis writes that, God appears in a smear, still small whisper or something and says, Tell me all, your story. All the thing, yeah, or, <laughs> or everything that I did was me trying to love you, but you saw it as boils and because that's all that you have vision for right now. But when you achieve level 55 of your hippy dippy, you know, Scientology program, then you'll see better. When you have faith, Job, then you'll you'll understand the big picture. And it's not that there isn't a big picture, and it's not that God doesn't love us, but there's something better about the book of Job. <laughs> I mean, the real God is no man's debtor, and he doesn't answer to anybody. It, it, one of the, maybe, maybe the best way to get at it is Lewis's conception of holiness. Mm-hmm. Like he, he pulls holiness in. Yeah. All over the place. And it's this what is actually dark and pagan. That's the unforgivable dirty thing. And unholy. I want to say that this might be a simplistic way to say it, but it's like to me, if 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 you put a gun to my head and you say who's closer to the truth, it's the fox, obviously. And I think C.S. Lewis in his heart of hearts agrees with me because he obviously likes the fox better. But if you follow the logic of the story, the priest of Ungate is much closer to God. Yeah, that's the than, that's kind of the that's, point. That's kind of the point. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a stupid point. Because he's away from reason and yeah, human he understands there's something spiritual and earthly, or earthy yeah. and supernatural, so, and not explainable by your cold logic and reason. Mm-hmm. So human well, sacrifice is okay because it kind of gets us close to the divine reality. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you know, human sacrifice is at the heart of the 
it's the one true myth, right? Yeah. Jesus is the one true myth. That's human so, sacrifice. And so everything else is types and shadows that we can baptize yeah. instead of abominations. And so when we sacrifice a girl, it's like we're kind of participating in the, this is kind of perverse. That that is that really is where you're sort of left. That is, it is where you're left. And that's that's what's really troubling about this. Yeah. The fox, he's he's wrong too. He is wrong. But the whole stink and terror of Ungit, he never teases that out and shows you that that is itself an abomination. Mm-hmm. No, he doesn't mean to. Yeah. He means to show you that it's a partial truth. It's a it's a step towards which just doesn't get you anywhere. What it gets you is it gets you um it gets you opening up a craft bar and getting tattoos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I wanted to say it gets you is it gets you a Leonard Cohen song. It's a yeah. cold and it's a broken hallelujah. At least it's a hallelujah. Yeah. Um yeah. And I think that is what bothers me about the part 2 is the part 2 starts out strong. It's fine. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. But there's no thunder and lightning. With, and when you have a story that's about someone who's this bitter and this angry at God, you want it to be like the terror at the end. If they're going to have a salvation moment, then make it a salvation moment. And have, not them, like, have them... Not like a Jane Austen wedding scene. Right. Have them be undone. Yeah. Yeah, and then the joy it doesn't, comes She doesn't have to die like a Flannery O'Connor character. Right. But you definitely want... But she does have to be undone. Yeah, you want the god of Flannery O'Connor's characters to come in and do something terrifying. Lewis himself has given us a better metaphor. Aslan has to show up and tear those scales off of the dragon before it can be Eustace again. Yeah, that's right. And even that wasn't a very good metaphor, but it's a better one. Yeah. Nah, it's a pretty good metaphor. I'm just That's fine. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. But that was a children's story in here where it all was all on the line. Mm -hmm. He... The goes last all, he goes all great hand. divorce on us. He showed his hand. He yeah. goes all great divorce on us. Yeah. Where the great divorce is, you know, hell is just this gray, sad London. It's like London with no end to it. It's sad and it's gray and everybody's on a bus for whatever reason. That's hell. And then you go to heaven and heaven's just the platonic reality. Mm-hmm. And grass hurts your feet because you're not real. But one day you'll be real. One day you'll have a face. Won't that be something? Yeah. <laughs> further up and further in, baby. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Well, the thing, the reason that I don't like it is because I really like it. I cried through reading the second half of this book. I find it pretty moving and pretty powerful. That was the thing that pushed me into saying this is probably not a good book for me at all. Because I also find Leonard Cohen songs to be pretty movable, pretty moving and pretty powerful. And it's be- precisely because he meets that perfect kind of mix of mysticism and sex and mysticism and eroticism and Gnosticism and everything and just kind of combines it into a flavorful cocktail that just feels so smooth going down. But I just, I just think there might be death there really not to be too, put too fine a point on it, but it's just like, this is not the gospel. I, I can't and won't listen to Leonard Cohen Yeah, for similar reasons. He just has a way of playing my heart. This wasn't quite like that for me, but man, I definitely, I think that's, that's the heart of the heart of it and what's bad about it. And I think that it, it really, this may be what you were going to say. It, it casts everything else that Lewis has done in sort of a more questionable light. Uh, It makes it hard to accept things that uh, were easier for me to swallow. Before you, heard a, you heard our, ep- I mean, people can go back and listen to our episodes on the hideous strength, which we really liked, that hideous strength. 
this book made me think, Ugh, maybe I don't like that hideous strength. All that stuff about like the marriage and all the pagan gods coming down as kind of angelic beings. It's It just made me, it made all that stuff, it just nudged it towards feeling that much weirder and that much more off. And it made me think that C.S. Lewis bought into that stuff, not just as metaphor, but as actual basically reality. Yeah. yeah. Makes it smell of blood and death. Yeah. Not that he way. bought into Tash. I mean, the one thing that every Christian, conservative Christian knows about C.S. Lewis is that he's the guy that thinks that if you, when you're sacrificing to Tash, you're also sacrificing to Aslan. If you do it in simple, humble, sincere faith or something yep. like that. Right. And so. that's relatively easy to spot and to spit out in Narnia. Children's book. Like even a kid, a relatively unsophisticated kid who knows his children's catechism can read that book and be like, oh, that's dumb. Yeah. But this book's much more enticing and much more sophisticated and yeah. therefore kind of not good, I want to say. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I wasn't sure we'd all land here. No, I really went into this with no preconceived notions. I didn't see how we were going to avoid landing here. <laughs> but yeah. I sort of full deck of cards on the table, full deck of cards. I'm actually holding an entire deck of cards. <laughs> um, all 52 of my cards on the table. I didn't want to land here. I no. think it just feels kind of, for one thing, I always like to land where other people aren't landing because it's just more fun. And it feels kind of hackneyed to be the, you know, anti-Lewis brigade coming in against the, you got your pro-Lewis people that all just love him blindly. And so we're going to be the grumpy anti-Lewis. Yeah. I don't really want to do that, but I just... I feel like this book is kind of garbage. <laughs> because of the ending. I mean, I Because think of the ending. That, it's a well-written book. It's moving. Yeah. Like I said, I cried at the end. It's very similar to actually... I, I mentioned, I guess, in the last episode that we all got to go sentence by sentence through Weight of Glory. Mm-hmm. Fantastic essay until the end. Yeah. yeah. When it kind of goes off the rails. Yep. Kind of the same thing here. Mm-hmm. Really, very well-written. I would say completely an A. Yeah. If I were, you know. <laughs> Whatever. It's good. It's really well written. The characters are fun. They're good. Yeah. They're engaging. And so Jake had me convinced it's a parable. Mm-hmm. It works as d- it, doing what it wants to do. It works just fine. And it's really actually better than, you know, most people can do. Right. Sure. It's yeah, good. It's absolutely. really, really, really absolutely. good. So my point earlier against the people who like to hold this up as like a literary masterpiece, that's the only reason I was pushing that way. Mm-hmm. Because it's not. I mean, yeah. you're just being stupid and you're showing your... You're showing your face if that's really what you're right. trying to say. You're just, you just got to stop that. That's dumb. But then you get into this other weird stuff at the end, and that's where it goes like what you're saying, where it becomes almost wicked. Not almost wicked. It becomes wicked. I think so. And I kind of like yeah. your idea of just chop off the end and make it the story of a bitter, <laughs> angry yeah. woman, and it just ends on a And that's her destruction. She's never yeah. sees her face. And that's the way most people are anyways. I mean, I'd rather have no, I guess what I'm saying is no redemption is much better than false redemption yeah. at the end of the day. At least with no redemption, we can just be like, eh. Or at least have, no if, he succeed, if he succeeds, though, in what he was trying to do in that that whole first section, then you agree, you end up walking away agreeing with her that the gods are fickle yeah. and nasty. Unless he's brilliant and can twist it just so much that you see. But, but he's... He's not. His answer was part two. Yeah, that's right. His answer was part two. <laughs> and, and his answer. And that's the, I mean, back to where we started one way or another, a guy who has something to say and a guy who has a story to tell. Mm-hmm. A guy who has a story to tell stands or falls on whether or not his story is good and worth telling. Mm-hmm. A guy who has something to say, no matter how well he tells his story to get you there, <laughs> if what he has to say is garbage, thank you. It's looking for a word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
if what he has to say is garbage, then it all falls. Is not one that we were allowed to use, so yeah. I have supplied garbage. I buy that thesis. I buy, I buy that thesis. And so had Cupid been the terrifying god of thunder and lightning who had her wailing and weeping and seeing her sin? Sure, well, it'd yeah, be the, better than this. Might have been a way to do it. Um, yeah. But well, again, I kind of want to come back to the point I've made five times now and say just the fact that it falls because it's trying to say something makes me think, you know, it was he was almost to writing a psychologically interesting non-parable. I wish he'd just done that, you know? I wish he'd just gone for it. I think he might have actually been able to do it with a little with another rewrite or two and Yeah. Instead he really wanted to tag on that thesis. Mm. His story. Yeah. He wanted to tag on his point and just not let the care I mean, you feel like it I don't know, it betrays itself in the end. And he didn't even have anything up his sleeve, just even as it would have been nice. It's just a bunch of visions at the end. Like, yeah, the couldn't whole... it have been something more organic? Like, I don't know. I Maybe it's just picking nits, but... Yeah, the whole metaphysics, it just ruins it. It's, it's just, just so metaphysical, so fast at the end after being relatively restrained. Yeah. It's just like, badly done, Lewis. Badly, badly done. You chose poorly. You chose poorly. <laughs> well, again, I think that's just Lewis. He's a restrained atheist. Mm-hmm. Yeah looking at the story of Cupid and Psyche for psychological realism and finding none there Mm -hmm. and thinking it's all ridiculous and coming to the end of his life and realizing, no, he was the ridiculous one. And actually he was jealous. Yeah. And he, didn't he spend his whole life puzzling over it? And now he's a mystical, but here's the thing that I reject. I reject about that, that he never convinces me that he's actually a man of faith. What this reads like to me is the work of someone who is still an atheist and who still believes in reason and can't make any of it work because he has no faith in but the believes God he reason, should. but believes he should. And so therefore, he's going to wave a magic wand and he's just going to say, poof, it's... It's love. <laughs> All you need is love. And that's exactly the kind of person that Brandon's talking about, the people that really like this book. What they end up doing, be, because they think it has something to say about bitterness, those are the exact kinds of people. And, I'm, of course, me and Brandon are both thinking of different real people here. Those are the exact kind of people that end up oppressing you because they're bitter. Yeah. And so they judge you as bitter and they say, well, why don't you just wave the magic wand of this book or of whatever? You're, it's dishonest. You're a liar. There are no magic you're a wands. Liar. There is the grace of God in our lives and there is justification. There is Jesus' blood that has spilt his resurrection and there is the process of sanctification, which takes a lifetime and there ain't no magic all you need is love formula. Yeah, and that's really. I think. I think you hit it. You have because they're all. They're all deep down. They're all actually atheists too. Mm-hmm. That they, they don't actually believe, and they feel a certain sense of pride in their conflict and doubt, yeah. and in that place of bitter intellectual pride. I've given up and, on reason, and I've embraced my doubts. That's wrong. That's not yeah. what God calls you to do. God fulfills your reason, and He calms your doubts because he's God and he's big enough to do it. And you don't have to be a mystic, weird Gnostic. No, you just need to be like a little child and come to him with open hands. What a stupid book. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> Would you guys give the BSOA the coveted booking seal of approval? Two percent, yes. <laughs> yeah. I thought maybe I would coming in, but <laughs> I really wanted to. I, I, I genuinely wanted to. And that's to part not... one. Well, here's. I guess here's something that I would say. I would not. I would discourage a certain sort of person exactly. from reading this. But only a certain sort of person. Probably yeah. most people that reading listen to the booking, I'd say, yeah, read it. It's it's pretty well written. Uh, It'd be interesting, and we can have this conversation over it right. yeah. at, when we're done, and it'll be helpful. Right. Yeah. But there are certain people who should stay the and unfortunately, hockey the, sticks away from Those people thing. probably don't know who they are. No. <laughs> if you're the type of person that... Right. If you're full of bitterness and pride and uh, you don't... And zero self-awareness. You have, yeah. If you have zero self-awareness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Crap. <Yeah>. Can't be me. <laughs> no, 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 not any of us. Well, I don't know how much self-awareness it is, but I just know that for me, the clincher was I felt the attraction of this thing. And anytime I feel that sort of attraction, I mean, it's this reason Jake can't listen to Leonard Cohen. And by the way, if we've never revealed it before, we might as well reveal that. <laughs> it was think, Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen. It was, was Leonard the, Cohen. If you ever listened to... If you want to know who it was, it was Leonard Cohen. I don't think we need to say anything more than that. Yeah. If you want to know who it was, it was Leonard Cohen. If Booking fans, if if you know your Booking True fans history, will know what we're talking yeah, about. Leonard Cohen, it was mine. He and, was the guy that we killed. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Our disapproval know. killed him. Yeah. Our disapproval. <laughs> Leonard Cohen was like, ah, oh, I think we're about done. Um, uh, uh, what did um, what did Leonard Cohen tell us? Yeah, he's up for an Emmy. He, <laughs> he told he tells us love is not a victory march. It's love a cold and it's a lonesome a victory march. <laughs> well, you know, I heard that David uh, played a chord and he played it well. But you don't really care for music, do you? No. No, I don't. It goes like this. The fourth, fourth fifth, fifth, minor, minor fall, fall, major the, lift. The baffled king composing. So stop. Don't. Just stop. <laughs> All right. Where are, you, where, where are those guns at? Man? You got guns over there still? Yeah. <laughs> Start shooting me. That's attractive stuff. Even Batman and Superman gave in. In the Justice League movie, we had some crappy cover of... And that was the only problem with that movie. <laughs> Everything <laughs> else was only. fantastic. Besides that crappy female vocalist singing a Leonard Cohen song about... <laughs> Everything is broken, everything is lost, because Superman... I don't remember how that song goes. But anyway, um, spoilers for the credits of the opening credits of the uh, uh, Justice League. Thanks for listening, everybody! The Booking Today was written and produced by Nathan Alberson. It featured Brandon Chastain, it featured Jacob Menzel, and it featured Nathan Alberson in their starring roles as the heroes of the Booking. The heroes you want, the heroes you need. Much like Bath- Bathman was for Gotham. <laughs> <laughs> Batman was na, 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 na. for Gotham. Bathman. Bathman. <laughs> Bathman makes ducky. an appearance when my kid's on a... My kid's the Baz. The Batman shows up. Batman show. Yeah. <laughs> my little brother used to have a... When he was about three, had a superhero that involved him getting out of the bath and running around with a bath towel around his... Uh, 
neck in a cape type manner, and that superhero was cleverly entitled Naked Man. <laughs> was this John? <laughs> that been John. I mean, he would have been. You know, this is old, you know, oh, yeah, not even by like two or something. Yeah, no, 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 nothing. Um, uh, <laughs> Booking was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Warhornmedia.com uh, forward slash give. That's a good place to go. Make a tax-deductible donation. Listen to our other fine podcasts. We got plenty of them, folks. Practical Ecclesiology. Come to our pastor's conference. It's entitled, Jake. The Good Fight. The Good Fight. It's all about... Conflict in Christian ministry. Conflict in Christian ministry. I'm excited about it, and I'm not even a pastor. It's not even really a pastor's conference, exactly. It's a shepherd's conference, if I'm not mistaken. Is that true? Yeah, it's open to, to ruling elders, to those who are aspiring to be elders, or training to be elders, or who... Yeah, well, I said aspire, so there you yeah. go. Anybody who um, wants to be a leader in the church and, and to better understand how to lead um, and serve your own local church. If that's you, then sign up today. And thanks for listening. Goodbye. Stay sane. Stay sane. <laughs> Until next time. Get some faces. <laughs> yeah, we'll see you next time. Till we have faces. Yeah.